An undeniable truth reflecting on the state of our global culture today is that we humans like sports. I'm thinking most of all that we are fans of sports. Now, many of us self-excluded are avid and in some cases accomplished athletes in one or another of hundreds of sports, but that's still a rarefied crowd. The reason we use a phrase like weekend warrior to speak of some older person who plays tennis on the weekends is that in doing so, she is separating herself from her peers, right? She's not just a dime a dozen kind of a person. She plays tennis on the weekends every weekend. She's a warrior. As many warriors as there are, there are far more fans. And perhaps like you, dear listener, I too am a fan and a fan of a lot of sports. And because of this undeniable truth that humans like sports, think of the worldwide popularity of a single sport, football, the billions of fans and dollars, the avidity and resources driving just that one sport. Because of this undeniable truth that humans like sports, well, those who play them professionally, the weekday warriors, if you will, become of greater interest. This week's show, we have one of the top 1,000 or so players in the world of the sport of tennis. If I told you we had one of the top 1,000 or so lawyers in the world, nothing personal lawyers, just having fun making a point, you might not be as interested. But when a year ago I welcomed Indianapolis Colts head coach Frank Reich onto this show. That was a sit up and listen week for this podcast and an episode that's been shared around and re listened to many times since. Well, this week's guest, Sam Verbeek, is also of great interest to me and I think you'll find for you too. Many more of us play or continue to play tennis, at least on some weekends, than we'll ever continue to play football. And Sam's experience, his story, his perspectives, and his optimism about investing, business, and the future, thinking also here of the Motley Fool Foundation, will, I think, shine through. You're about to meet another excellent athlete this week who is a fellow fool. Only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder, David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Very excited to get started this week. But before we do, I want to mention what's happening next week. Next week, I'm inviting Robert Brokamp of Motley Fool fame, bro to so many, financial planner, star personality of Rule Your Retirement, which is a subscription for many a fool over the years. Also, co-host of the former Motley Fool Answers. Robert will be on with me next week because it starts to get scary. Am I right? It starts to get scary the later we get into the month of October. For many of us, it gets scarier and scarier. And so my thought was, why wouldn't we have Robert on next week to tell some scary stories of people who didn't do their will? Yep. One of the themes of 2022, I think it's fair to say for this podcast, I will not beat around the bush, is death. We've talked about death over dinner. We've talked about the importance of recognizing our mortality and especially from a financial standpoint, being prepared, not leaving those who come after to pick up the pieces and figure out what the heck we meant to do with our resources that we just, I don't know, 
left splayed all over the playing field out there. So scary stories of people who didn't do their will next week with Robert Brokamp. I also want to mention the first week of November, it's going to be my latest edition of Mental Tips, Tricks, and Life Hacks. And this series, which will continue its episodic history-making, is always improved by your best mental tips, tricks, and life hacks. I already have a bunch myself, but rbi at fool.com is our email address. Do you have a good mental tip, a trick, or a life hack that has served you well in life, whether in your investing life, your business life, or your life life? Great. Drop us a line as early as this week, and we'll begin a compelling list, I hope, of listener-submitted mental tips, tricks, and life hacks coming the first week of November. All right, well, let's get started with this week's guest. And I want to say ahead of time, I think you and I are going to find that the tennis world probably is a little bit different than we might have thought. There's a lot to learn about sports, investing, business, and life on this week's podcast. Let's get started. Sam Verbeek is a Dutch tennis player. Sam has a career-high ATP, that's the Association of Tennis Professionals, doubles ranking of 104 in the world that was achieved in November of 2021. His career-high singles ranking thus far is number 531. Now, to be in the top 5,000 at an artistic or athletic pursuit would be, for most of us, I think a remarkable dream come true. Well, Sam has done that at the age of 28 years old today. Sam has achieved becoming one of the top 500 tennis players in the world. Now, for tennis fans, on a side note, you may want to know he plays left-handed with a two-hand backhand. Even more to the point of this podcast, Sam is a self-described, along with many of us, your host here included, fool. He follows and exemplifies many of the concepts floated here on the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast over the years, and of course, from The Motley Fool at Fool.com. You know, in some ways, this interview is analogous to my interview with Indianapolis Colts head coach Frank Reich last year, Two Fools, it was called, which is exactly what this one is called, and officially makes this into a series. Sam and I will be discussing his background, where he came from, tennis and the world of tennis, and of course, the worlds of investing and business. So wide-ranging, and we're going to be joined by a special guest in a bit. But in the meantime, Sam Verbeek, such a pleasure to have you on Rule Breaker Investing. Yeah, thank you, David. It's uh, it's an honor to be here. I'm still kind of wrapping my head around how this all came to be. But uh, yeah, thank you for the opportunity to share a bit of my story. Well, longtime listeners will know it was a mailbag note that you dropped about a year ago or so where you introduced yourself to me and to our audience, and we've gotten to be friends since. And I look for many future highlight moments in our friendship going forward. But let's start, Sam, with where you were born. I did mention you were a Dutch tennis player. You speak impeccable English, but where were you <laughs> born, Sam? To what family were you born in? Maybe what's a memorable moment or two from your early childhood? Yeah, like you said, I am a born and raised Dutchman. Um, I was born in Amsterdam, actually, um, and haven't moved outside of Amsterdam officially um, up until this time. Um, I have one older sister. Um, her name is Liz, and my parents, Frank and Cora, um, who are still together, um, which is great. I came into uh, yeah, a very loving family, um, very close. We're still all very close, which is nice. And mm. 
a love of sports. That's uh, how I came into uh, tennis, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. Um, but yeah, memorable moments. As a, as a young boy in the Netherlands, um, I started playing football at a young age or soccer for your American audience. Um, <laughs> and there's a, there's a big football team in Amsterdam called Ajax that I'm a big fan of and continue to support to this day. And one of the most memorable moments of my life so far, not just childhood, um, has been able to, to walk onto the pitch um, as holding hands with one of my favorite players of all time. And I still have his shirt, uh, which he uh, gave to me, and still hangs mm. proudly uh, in my house. So that was uh, definitely uh, an amazing moment. And Sam, who, who is that player, and why was it an amazing moment for you? Um, his name is Wesley Snyder. He, uh, he doesn't play anymore, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I, as a young boy, that's your dream to play for Ajax in your hometown. And we were season tickets holder. My dad and I went for a very long time. And uh, to be able to, to be on that pitch and see my dad in the stands there uh, and have a little wave uh, was, was really cool. And another memorable thing about that moment is that at that time, I was already taller than he was. So he did not really appreciate that, <laughs> which was very funny. So you were already taller than your father or Vesley or both? No, definitely not my father. I am, I'm trying to catch up, but he is <laughs> he's still taller than I am. Um, but then Vesley. Yeah, so it was, it was kind of funny because they panned the camera to all the players. And then I was kind of already a little bit above what he was. But I'm, uh, I'm sure he doesn't remember. Sam, you and I have not gotten to meet each other in person yet, but at least looking at the stats I see online, you're six foot four. How tall is your dad? Yeah, he's a few centimeters taller than I am. He's almost two meters on the nose, which I think is like six five and a okay. little bit. Um, Got it. But I'm hoping to catch up. <laughs> well, it seems less likely you'll ever catch him, although now turning the age of 56 and having at my last two annual physicals learned that I lost a half inch and then a quarter inch, <laughs> I actually now realize you will catch him, won't you? Yeah, well, let's see. Let's see how that goes in a few years. <laughs> so, speaking of your family, Sam, what was your father's calling or professional life, and your your mother, and what was life like in your household growing up? Yeah, my my dad has always been really passionate about about work. When um, my, my sister and I were growing up, um, my mom was more of a, a housetaker and a housemaker, where mm -hmm. she would drive us to all of our practices and. Uh, bike us to schools. We don't we don't use cars very much in in Amsterdam, and luckily we uh, we lived and my elderly home is still close to where I went to school for elementary school. Um, so she would walk us to school and and all of that. But my dad is um, how they met actually is at for a advertising company in the Netherlands. I'm not sure if that was in Amsterdam, um, but that's mm -hmm. how they got to meet. And then um, my dad now has been in corporate finance M&A for a while. Um, he is now working for a company called Improved Corporate Finance. Um, and they do a lot of stuff in technology and energy and the new mobility. So it's been kind of cool being at the at the forefront of what's hopefully going to happen for the next few decades. But mm. yeah, he's always been an entrepreneur and had that entrepreneurial spirit for, uh, for a long time. And my mom now has a, a small shop, a boutique shop in Amsterdam as well, um, which is going great. So, 
I think it's time to give that shop a plug. Now, most of our <laughs> listenership is American, but about a quarter of our listenership is international. Some are either already in Amsterdam or passing through. Can we give your mom's shop a plug on this podcast? Absolutely. It's called Maison NL. So the it's the French spelling, M-A-I-S-O-N, and then the N-L of the Netherlands. And they do have a lot of interior and uh, gift ideas. And um, yeah, it's really cool. She's really Excellent. enjoying it. And Sam, I would be remiss if I didn't ask, how's your sister doing? And tell me a little bit about her life. I tend to go strong to the hoop on people's parents, but you mentioned Liz. Yeah, so um, Liz is my lovely sister. She's about two and a half years older than I am. And she was also, she was a great field hockey player when she was younger. Um, so I think sports has always been important in our family. And um, I think she took that to heart. And, you know, after her... Um, degree in university in Amsterdam. Um, she went on to be a great personal trainer and has found the uh, the gym and fitness to be a, a real help to her. And awesome, she's, she's in Amsterdam right now working, and yeah, everything is is going well, thankfully. So there's a lot of entrepreneurship, obviously, uh, swirling around you and your your background. What did you understand as a boy about the worlds of money and or business? What was your viewpoint at, let's say, the age of 10? If, we, if I was interviewing you 18 years ago, asking you what you thought of business. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I just always understood that people had to work. <laughs> um, and I always saw my dad as someone who was really hardworking and luckily was also really good with, with money. Um, growing up, we never had... Um, any problems or any issues of when it came to, to money or um, so we grew up comfortably, which I'm Wonderful. very grateful to, to them both. Um, but yeah, you, you know, you kind of get into when you are driving to practice, you're in, you're in a car and uh, you get to see kind of what brand it is. And I've always been a very curious child. You can ask my mom about that. I would ask her the question why almost every single <laughs> moment of the day. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think that natural, natural curiosity kind of sparked mm. just the, uh, the entrepreneurial spirit in general. Wonderful. Um, and before we get to, I think, a dominant part of our interview, tennis, I'm going to ask you one more pre-tennis question. As I mentioned, we are obviously an of origin, an American podcast, a quarter of our listenership, again, is international. I've still, to my shame, never been to Amsterdam. Oh. So could you put in a word or two for the, let's say, the Chamber of Commerce for <laughs> Amsterdam or Holland more generally, if you, the, the Netherlands more generally, how did, how did growing up in Amsterdam shape you? Mm, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it's, it's always kind of felt, obviously, like home. Um, and what I've loved is that you can be outdoors a lot in Amsterdam. And mm. that kind of shaped me into loving sports and always wanting to be active. Um, especially the home feeling comes from being able to bike almost everywhere. And, mm. you know, especially in the U.S., I've noticed from studying there is that you need a car for almost everything. And growing up in Amsterdam, like I said, we, we used to bike a lot and we used to walk a lot. So it was kind of an interesting combination of feeling like a, a town where uh, you could just go from one place to the other really quickly, but also then the international allure of the city. And obviously growing up, I didn't know much about how international Amsterdam was, but 
you would see a lot of foreigners walking on the streets, you know, people from different continents and speaking different languages. And yeah, that kind of stuck with me now as I'm thankfully traveling out for tennis. That's wonderful. And you just said the word. So let's, let's go there. And as we go there, I'd like to welcome another special guest. George Koloff was a nationally ranked college tennis player here in the U.S. And yet he tells me he only dreamed of competing at the level that Sam does. George keeps up his tennis as a weekend warrior on the public courts in Brooklyn, New York. His tennis highlight was representing his home country of Lebanon at the time, in a national team match against Saudi Arabia the year, for those keeping score at home, and I am, was 1996. It was played in Beirut. George then spent the first half of his business career in the private sector as a management and strategy consultant, the second half in the nonprofit and startup space. George was the co-founder and executive director of Empatico. That's a digital platform that connects children around the world to build bridges across lines of difference. But... Everyone should know that today, George is also now the program director at the Motley Fool Foundation, tasked with finding, funding, and amplifying innovative solutions that will turn strivers into thrivers as we work toward our vision of financial freedom for all. And I especially want to commend George because he's taking a day off from his own vacation in the Poconos, where he seems to be in something that looks kind of like a closet. And so, George, while your sound is not professionally produced from a studio this week, we're delighted to have you. Welcome. Thank you, David. It's such a it's such a pleasure to be here. I remember when you passed on the mailbag note from Sam a few months ago, and you said, hey, would you like to, you know, follow up with Sam? And I said, are you kidding me? Tennis and the fool, two of my passions coming together in one person, <laughs> one space. So um, I, couldn't, I couldn't be more thrilled to be part of this conversation. Thank you, George. And really looking forward to you pulling up a chair because you know tennis uh, far better than most of the rest of us, especially me. And you have such a heart and a knowledge base around financial inclusion and around, of course, the work of financial freedom for all, which is one of the topics we'll hit a little bit later. But friends, we are talking about tennis right now. And, and I'll just kick us off. Sam, at what point did tennis enter your life? Yeah, I was around the age of 10. Um, my mom actually played for a recreationally pretty good level, and uh, they played at a, uh, a local club not too far from where I grew up. And sometimes I would I would watch her practice and um, just be really interested as the curious kid that I <laughs> always was in my childhood. And um, I do remember stories from my mom and dad that if we were on a, a beach uh, vacation, you know, we would always bring those little beach paddles with the, the small rubber ball. And apparently I had a I had a knack for that very young. Um, my dad sometimes says, you know, there were people that would walk on the beach and, and stop and just watch us hit balls um, for a while because I was apparently pretty young um, when that was happening. So the feeling for the ball was always kind of there. But the introduction to actual tennis was around the age of 10, 11, when I wow. started playing once a week. Yeah, I always imagine anybody who's a professional tennis player today clearly either being born with a tennis racket or picking one up somewhere around the age of four. I definitely get the beach paddle. I actually love it. started that way, Sam. But so tenor, obviously you loved football slash soccer growing up. That was probably your initial 
dream, is it fair to say, that you would have loved to be playing for the very team you mentioned earlier? Yeah, absolutely. Um, still miss it sometimes. <laughs> so I get to uh, I get to play every once in a while. Just have to be a little bit careful with injury risk. Yes. Well, now so many of us in the U.S. often our sports are through our school. We play for a school team. Some of us who get really good at sports often play for a so-called travel team, which is in an addition to our school team. What was it like for you starting at 10 or 11? Were you playing for your neighborhood, your school, all the above? And what was it like to get started in earnest, already double digits age, in this new sport? Yeah, uh, so how it works in in Amsterdam and the Netherlands is you just have clubs where you can sign up for, for lessons and to become a member. Um, so yeah, I signed up for lessons at the, the club that my mom was playing at. And as everybody starting something new, the beginning is always fun. And that's I think that's the most important for anyone picking up a, a new passion or a new hobby. Let it be fun in the beginning. And um, I was always very interested in sports and moving. And I think that in combination with having that feeling for the ball at a young age um, made me kind of progress maybe a little bit more quickly than some of the other kids that I was in a group with. Um, but yeah, I, would, I just loved being outdoors and just hitting the ball as hard as I could. <laughs> It's interesting, Sam, as I'm teaching my own kids tennis, because I obviously have a passion for it and I'm out there teaching them. And, um, you know, there's a debate sometimes among players. Should you focus at an early age um, exclusively with one sport or should you just be sort of a well-rounded athlete and then start the focus later? And I think the two professional athletes who exemplify the extremes are someone like Roger Federer, who, as you, I'm sure you know, you know, he sort of picked up a lot of sports before focusing on tennis. And then the opposite extreme is a golfer like Tiger Woods, who, you know, there are images of him at the age of three with a, with a golf club and starting to pick up golf. So he's the example of like extreme focus at an early age, um, whereas Federer is more the example of that well-rounded sort of do a lot of sports and then focus. Um, um, it, it sounds to me like you're more the Roger Federer uh, approach to, to, to sports and tennis. Yeah, it, just about the only thing that's similar between Roger Federer and me, maybe at this moment. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, obviously, I can only speak from my experiences. And I see that there's merits to, to both ways. Um, just kind of linking that to finance and investing, it, I think it's important, especially in the beginning, to diversify. And uh, what, it done, what it has done for me is kind of build your athleticism. You, know, you, get, to, you get different moving patterns, and especially as a kid, uh, just being able to move in different ways and, and having different technical skills, but also at that age, also having some mental skills is, is so important when you start focusing on that one sport. And mm. You know, it's especially important knowing that people like Roger Federer and like Tiger Woods are so extremely talented that the vast majority of the people cannot do what they do. Um, and I think they figured that out as well as they got better and better at their respective sports. Um, but just making sure that as a kid and especially for the parents, I would say have them play as many sports as as possible because you never know what kind of other passions that could cultivate as well. Mm. So Sam, at what point on your path 
maybe your mid-teens, does it become clear that you are going to be probably full-time tennis, maybe 110%. Wait, that's one of my pet peeves. I hate it when people say 110%. You can only ever be Anyway, at what point does it become clear to you that you are a tennis player going forward? When I started actually getting lessons around the age of 10, um, I started progressing quite quickly, and I wanted to play more. And, you know, one time a week became maybe two times, three times a week. And at the same time, I was also still playing soccer or football uh, six times a week, including a match day. And eventually in the Netherlands, you go from elementary school to what we call high school, kind of around the age of 12 and 13. And that was really the point where I was getting to the point in tennis where if I could take it a little bit more seriously, um, you know, I could maybe be good in my region or something like that. Um, but I was also still playing football, like I said, uh, almost every day. And that's where my parents kind of sat me down and said, it may be a little bit too much with how much homework you're going to get and how much school is going to be to play both sports as much as you would like. So, you know, maybe it's it's time to make a decision there. And I think the novelty of tennis and just the natural learning curve there made me lean towards tennis a little bit more. So I think it was around the age of 12 where I started playing tennis Ooh. as my primary sport. And that continues through, you end up at university, I'm assuming, somewhere, yes? Not everybody does. In fact, a lot of Europeans don't. They're still incredibly well-educated. They just don't, there's not an expectation everyone's going to college, which it does feel like has become the case often in the U.S. But what was it like, that transition for you, both as a, as a young man and as an athlete toward university? Yeah, and I think if I had stayed in the Netherlands, I don't think I would have ended up in uh, an American university. But it so happened that when I was 14, um, I wanted to do a, maybe a summer tennis camp, while my family wanted to have a vacation in the US. So we combined those two, and I ended up at a, at a summer camp in a Florida tennis school. Wow. IMG Academies when I was 14, and that lasted two weeks. And then at the end of the two weeks, um, I think it was the director of tennis there that he wanted to have a chat with my uh, with my dad. And as we came back to the Netherlands after, he mentioned that they invited me for a full school year if I wanted to. Um, and after a long summer of saying yes, saying no, not really knowing what to do, it actually came down to the very, very last moment that I was able to say yes. Um, I just woke up apparently that one day and said, let's just give it a try. So I ended up actually going to boarding school in the U.S. Um, where I did, um, I started in 10th grade um, at 14 years old and yeah, it was away from my parents and, you know, but I think the U.S. high school system does so well is kind of preparing you for college. And, you know, at that point, especially at 14, I had no professional aspirations. I was nowhere near good enough to say I'm not going to school or anything like that. Hmm. and um, yeah, that, that one year kind of turned into three years. So <laughs> I graduated from an American high school in Florida. And for me, it became, became kind of the natural progression to, to go to college then. And as, um, I was at that, uh, tennis academy in that school, it never really came to me that there was a professional path, um, after high school. Um, you know, I would see all of these actual professionals at that time come in and um, we would be divided into groups based on level. And I was never one of the top players. I was always maybe two or three groups below the, the very huh. top. And 
that also kind of became clear to me that's like i want to go study um and at that time learning already was a lot of fun for me as it still thankfully is um and you know i never said this is this is for me and i think that not being one of the best at that age was really a blessing for me because it made me focus more also on the academic side not just the athletic side and then yeah ended up in california for my studies which was awesome where i went to university of the pacific go tigers <laughs> love yeah, it I, I went there um at, in 2012 and graduated in uh, in 2016 and again it was really more the the academic side that made me uh, lean towards university of the pacific it was actually one of the only universities where the coach uh, responded to my email of a request if I could if I could maybe walk on to their tennis team, and that was my introduction to um, college sports in the U.S. And they had the degree that I wanted to study, and the coach was willing to to let me walk on the team. And yeah, those four years became one of the most valuable times of my of uh, my hopefully long life so far. <laughs> Well, George, now it makes sense to me why Sam speaks such good English. I did not know, Sam, that you've yeah. gone to an American prep school. And, of course, out to Stockton, California, I see, where the University of Pacific claims to be California's first university, which um, I will grant that. I think. There you you know your stuff. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, it, you know, I just the name has always been alluring to me because I picture that beautiful ocean out there, and I, I picture probably some lovely tennis. Maybe my first tennis question is it windy at the University of Pacific, and does that affect tennis? No, oh, very, very much. And um, I was <laughs> I was lucky to have to have visited there um, because, like you said, the Pacific sounds like the ocean and palm trees and um, the the California allure to many people. But Stockton is right in the Central Valley, um, so it's uh, it's in the middle of the very big mm. state of California, and it can get very windy and it can also get very deceptively cold. And mm. both of those things affect your tennis game a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, I'm curious. I mean, with some someone like me, with you know, bare, you know, very modest tennis career, if anything, you know, I I always when I look back, you know, I played the junior tournaments, the 12s, 14s, 16s, 18s, and I've always found that experience very lonely. You know, I had these images of like you know me going out on like court 52 with a big water bottle, windy. You know, you're out there battling and like you're 13 years old and you're alone mm. on the court and, you know, it inevitably, you know, you end up crying and there are questionable <laughs> line calls and that whole junior <laughs> tennis experience, like there's some PTSD from it. And then when I went to high school, I really loved the team experience with high school tennis. And I even loved more the team experience with college tennis. I'm curious, like, what is life like? on the tour and what are some of the like biggest misconceptions of life on the tour? Yeah, great question. And I feel very much the same as you did. The, the team aspect um, was definitely different, but also very nice, you know, coming from Europe and having played soccer or football, I think that helped me in that team dynamic. And I think it helped me find my role relatively quickly in, in the team at Pacific. Um, but yeah, so the transition going from college into the pros very much reverses that process. Um, you know, naturally, I think professional athletes and especially athletes that play 
kind of a solitary sport where most of the time tennis is one-on-one, they tend to be a little bit more on the selfish side. And it's more of a stereotype for uh, professional athletes that, you know, they think about themselves all the time and um, they do what's necessary for them. Um, But the beauty of college sports, and especially for me, college tennis, is that you already have people on the tour that have gone through the system that you have as well. So there's a there's more of an instant connection there to help you find um, some grounding as you go into the sometimes very lonely travels of what tennis can be. You know, you're spending your times most of the time either on the court or in your hotel room, um, and oftentimes alone, especially if you're not able to to bring a coach. So you know what people see on TV or whether it be sports or tennis. Life is definitely not as glamorous when you work your way up to the ranking where you can get on those TV tournaments. Um, I think people have a a very misconstrued view of what professional sports is, where Mm. the climb to get there is is a tall, tall mountain and uh, a mountain that's, I think, worth climbing if if you have the drive and you have the capabilities. But there's a lot of hard lessons learned on the, along the way, that's for sure. Well, I've definitely picked up that George is coaching his kids to be, I bet, pretty good tennis players. <laughs> I failed in the coaching of mine because I didn't really know tennis very well, though I have great admiration for the sport and great regret now that I kept telling my parents, no, I don't want tennis lessons. I don't, I don't want tennis lessons. I'm doing something else. And now I regret it. But I'm thinking about the power of coaching, whether it's George coaching his kids or Sam, looking back on your career, is there a particular coach at a, at a certain level, is it the Pacific coach? Who is a coach that you think of that has most made you into the player you are today? Yeah, I think the coach at Pacific was instrumental for getting me to, to where I am today. His name is Ryan Redondo. And um, that, that kind of inclination to not becoming a professional lasted very much into my four years into college as well. Um, what he did so well in college is focusing on the process and focusing on just becoming a better tennis player. Whereas the college system, especially for the coaches, can be quite brutal because they're judged on their wins and losses and budgets for colleges go to where most of the winners are. So if you're not winning enough, it has a big impact on the team. And at least to me, I fit into his system and what he taught really well. And um, I hope he shares this feeling, but I feel like we definitely cultivated a beautiful relationship that still uh, lasts into uh, into our lives right now. Um, and he re- made me realize that there is uh, a path for me into the professionals. My, uh, my junior year in college, I was out with uh, an injury for almost all of the season. Mm. And that was really when I sat down um, with Ryan and said, you know, last year is my last year of studying, but also potentially my last year of tennis. And that's what we kind of looked at each other and said, that doesn't really make any sense. You know, you have so much left to learn. And we both felt that uh, I could become a much better tennis player than I was uh, already then. And that was really the, the inspiration to say, let's, let's see if I can, if I can make it work after college. Um, so we devised kind of the same four year plan that college does from freshman to senior wow and yeah that that four-year transition ended at the beginning of uh, of this year so we uh, we sat down again with everybody who was involved now my parents and my current coach and 
everybody who's, uh, who's supporting me and said, you know, is it still worth it? Are we still going uh, in the right direction? Um, how is it financially? All of the hard hitting questions that I think everybody in investing, but also in business has to ask when they're doing something entrepreneurial. And thankfully we decided to keep it going for a few more years. So very grateful. That is one. What a great coach and what a wonderful relationship that you've maintained. It, it does remind me. And one of the questions uh, that I was prompted to ask by my friend Gaurav Kumar, one of our Twitter followers and fans of the Rule Breaker Investing podcast, is he was like, "Hey, David, make sure you ask Sam. You know, how is tennis similar to investing?" And you've already spoken at least once to that, and you you feel free to to mix that in as we go forward. But another similarity between, it seems to be tennis and investing, at least through your career, Sam, is the importance of playing the long game, of thinking ahead. And it's not just about returning the next serve. It's actually as much about where you're going to be three or five years from now. And if your career now at the age of 28 hasn't ever proven the beauty of playing the long game. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think... Just what you say so well on, on your podcast and the message that the full sends so well is when in doubt, just kind of zoom out. And especially with, with this year in the markets, <laughs> um, it's, it's important to, to kind of take a step back and, and see, you know, where was the market three years ago? Where was the market five years ago, et cetera. And I do the same for my tennis. Um, you know, we, we go through so much ups and downs in a season that it's important to kind of recognize where you are now, at least for me, five years ago, that would have been an absolute dream. And right now, if I'm feeling a bit down on myself or I'm, I'm losing matches that I don't think I should be losing, it's a great reminder to say, you know, where were you a year ago? Where were you three years ago? And how have you progressed since then? And then, you know, if you go through your process now, you can also ask that question into the future and say, will this help me a year from now, three years from now, or five years from now? if I'm lucky enough to be playing still at that time. Um, mm. So I think, yeah, the long game in every area of life will give you a great advantage. Now, we're obviously going to shift in a little bit toward money and investing uh, more explicitly. But let's stick with tennis at least a while longer, guys, because I feel like there's an opportunity to give some free tennis tips to the doppers <laughs> out there, the weekend warriors. George has numbered himself among them. George, I insist that you provide at least one tennis tip yourself, a very accomplished tennis player. At least the people I've hung out with, you're the best tennis player I know. So, <laughs> gentlemen, I feel like we have to speak to the people here and improve the game of tennis in our small way through this channel and this podcast this week. So I'm going to turn to Sam first. Sam, what is your top tip for Duffer weekend tennis players? <laughs> well, first, I have to commend everybody who is a self-proclaimed weekend warrior. Um, thank you for keeping the game alive and, and for all your passion. Um, a non-technical tip is really just make sure you keep having fun. Um, I think that's such a, a big thing that gets lost for us professional tennis players sometimes where it can feel like work, it can feel like a drag, um, but there are definitely moments that bring us back to why we do this and the reason that we got here. Um, so especially if tennis is something that you do not that often as, as we do, make sure you keep having fun. Um, and surround yourself with people that think the same. So if you can find a doubles partner or a, a hitting partner that makes it even more fun, hang out with that person. 
I love the fun message, and fun is something that is very important to us at The Motley Fool, and I think it's very important to all humans. And so thank you for leading with that, Sam. And now tip number two, something technical about the tennis game that too many of us are getting wrong too much of the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, so a, a great thing is um, there's there's many different grips and how you can hold your racket. Mm. One of the the simplest tips that I can give is when you're a little confused as to what grip to use, and this is specifically more for the forehand, so it's going to get a little bit into the specifics, is lay your racket down on on the court or on the ground. And the grip that you use to pick your racket up, that's most closely associated to the grip that you're going to use to hit a forehand. So if you're ever confused as to how you need to hold your racket, just remind yourself to put your racket down, which is also a great mental tip to <laughs> to not get caught up in in our thoughts and in our own minds. Just put your racket down for a little bit, take a couple of deep breaths. And then when you pick your racket up, just stick with that grip and see how it feels. Love it. I remember the tennis instructor I had when I was 10, when I did go to lessons, say, you're shaking hands with the racket. And so that's another thing, right? That's, that's the forehand me- mentality though, I think, right? Yes. Okay, yeah, good. Definitely. I'm able to say yes because I'm seeing Sam because uh, our listeners rarely know this, but we're always doing this by video. We don't actually tape the video, but I saw Sam nodding his head vigorously. Yes. Now, George, I think we should play a little tennis here. Let's keep tennis tipping back and forth between you and Sam. George, what's a tip that more weekend warriors will benefit from? Right. So so I, I do think I have to under um, underscore the having fun that's critical, especially for younger players. You know, you want to be out there. You want them to want to be out there, and that's how you improve. Mm. Um, the other, the other tip I would say is um, sometimes when you see junior players, the skills needed to win matches when you're 10, 11, 12, 13 are very different than the skills that are going to win matches at 15 or 16 or as you get older. So um, so don't be discouraged if you're coaching someone who's younger and you're getting them in tournaments and they're not winning the matches that you feel like they should be winning. Um, that doesn't matter. They're trying things out. They're playing perhaps more aggressively. They're working on shots that might not be successful when you're 10 or 11, but will be successful as they get older. And to be more specific, at 10, 11, in tennis, there are people called there's a style of play that's called a pusher. A pusher is essentially somebody who just gets a lot of balls back. And eventually, you know, somebody's going to make a mistake. The pusher depends on his or her <laughs> opponent making a mistake. And they're winning points, not by actually, you know, hitting a good shot necessarily, but by being very patient and waiting for the opponent to make a mistake. That strategy is successful, particularly in the junior ranks, up to a certain level. And then when players start to develop their game and be more aggressive and are more successful hitting winning shots, that strategy becomes less and less effective over time. I love that. That's a great message. And I think also, you know, when uh, if you're a parent out there that has a kid that is athletically gifted, whether it be in, in tennis or in, uh, in any other sport, is keep in mind that they might not like it as much as the parents sometimes do. Um, and that's where the, the fun comes in uh, again, like you said. And keep also in mind that the odds of them becoming the greatest ever are slim. 
So, and the, but <laughs> the, the odds of them having fun while they're doing it should be increased. And the last thing I'd say is for, for some of the more sort of recreational weekend warriors, when I see people who are out there who come back and want to come back, I mean, we as human beings naturally gravitate towards a sense of community, right? And if you can create that fun community among like-minded players, you know, that community is going to want you to come back. And it creates that sort of healthy peer pressure to be out there on a beautiful day and to to, and to and to keep going and you have people to compare your game to and to have fun with and it makes tennis a little less isolating and more like a team sport and something fun to do with friends yeah and as someone who plays uh predominantly doubles on the professional tour i'll i'll give a little doubles tip here as well um if you're at the net keep your racket up you know, keep your head up as you're playing tennis, but if you're at the net, make sure you keep your racket up. I have to keep reminding myself of that even now. Yeah, and in my case, it's self-defense just to protect my beautiful face. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, guys. So um, our five minutes of free tennis tips are now over, but that was that was wonderful. And again, so many people have some experience with the game. They may not even be weekend warriors, but they have associations or they're touching other people. So especially that mindset that often you gentlemen are speaking to so important and enjoyment. And I, I, I am not a weekend warrior, but I'm now picturing like a third of the people out there on the weekends aren't even having fun. They're just angry <laughs> and staying. In it. it sounds like people need to have more fun in the tennis world. And I think you're helping. Well, let's now move over to another topic of great interest, of course, to all of our listeners and to both of you gentlemen. And that's, that's money. Now, I'm, I want to talk a little bit here with a professional tennis player about you know, money on the tour, what it looks like. I will start by asking Sam, when I initially got to know you, I thought, well, first of all, you know, Nadal, Federer, I mean, these guys are all multimillionaires, and surely everyone on the ATP tour and the Challengers tour, which we're going to talk about as well, but all of these professional tennis players they don't need any finance or money tips. They don't need the Motley Fool. They're all rich. And then I think the scales began to fall from my eyes, and I started to realize the world's not quite as I thought it. And Sam, I think in an early exchange I had with you, you were pointing out to me that the vast majority of professional tennis players are scrapping to make it somewhere the next weekend. I say somewhere because it pops around. I know you are in France as we speak, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's really well said. And, you know, especially travel costs is one of the biggest costs for uh, for us as professional tennis players. But I think it's important to also for people that are not necessarily familiar with the professional tennis system, there's really three levels to this. Um, as you go on, um, you start with a ranking of zero. And that just means you have zero professional points. That is my ranking. <laughs> I, I will be retiring undefeated, un, unscored upon as a zero. My, Keep going. Mine, mine too, David. So we're both. We're George, both not you. Not you, George. <laughs> um, so, anyway, as you get started on the professional tour, you go on what they call the ITF uh, tour. And that's to kind of link that to investing. That's where most of kind of the micro cap companies are. And unfortunately, also some penny stocks are there. Um, ah. People that are, are not really going to make it there but that's the first step for almost all professional tennis player and when you find what does some... itf stand for sam i always like to break down acronyms what does itf stand for for the noobs 
<laughs> the International Tennis Federation. Thank you. Um, so as you progress through the ITF and through the professional rankings, you can get into the tournaments, like you just mentioned, the, which are the challengers. And the challengers are organized by the ATP, the Association of Tennis Professionals. And that's where kind of more the, the small cap uh, players slash companies are and uh, that grow into the mid caps. And that's really a level where you're kind of getting established um, in the world as someone who can really play tennis, but who is not on TV yet or is not um, quite yet at the peak of where they hope to be. And as you progress and as you find success on the Challenger Tour, you go on the main ATP Tour. And I think that's what most people associate with tennis is the ATP Tour, the, the Grand Slams where they see on TV or um, the smaller tournaments. But those are where the names that, like you just mentioned, are. And to kind of link that back to the stock market, those are the mega caps and the large caps and just the company sure. that everybody is familiar with. Well, our listeners are going to absolutely appreciate the metaphor that you're using. We can continue to use it or not, but that's great. I, I get you on the market cap of where we are. Sam, could you give me a quick sense of how many people are we roughly talking about on the Challenger Tour? How many people, rough numbers, are on the ATP? Yeah, so it's it's all kind of fluid because of the rankings. Um, right. But uh, I would say for at least for doubles to be consistently on the main ATP tour, you're going to have to have a ranking of about 70 or 80 in the world. Um, wow. And then below that to, to get into the challenger tournaments, anywhere from, you know, that 80 mark to about 250, maybe 300. That's where you can consistently hmm. play or regularly play challenger tournaments below that it's starts to get a bit tricky <laughs> you know i i'm i was trying to liken this to a sport i do know better which is baseball but and, and i i'm gonna have a short story to present a little bit later but i realize it doesn't really work that well because there are um there are really hundreds thousands i would say of baseball players who are in the minor leagues but we're really talking about a pretty rarefied air here 250 players or so even on, on the challenger tour so this is a this is a smaller community than i was thinking and yet sam i think part of what you've done is to recognize that a lot of your peers don't know a lot about money investing and keeping up with their finances yeah and you know i consider myself uh, one of those people thankfully i got in touch with the full um it's about a year and a half ago as i mentioned before i'm i'm lucky that i really like uh, learning and I think the recognizing the, the power of being in charge of your own finances and as your metaphor to, to baseball, uh, one big difference is, is that we are not contracted by the ATP as professional tennis players. We are what they consider independent contractors, which means that we can kind of make our own schedules and we can decide when we want to play. But it also means that we're also in charge of our own finances. We as you progress through a tournament, as you win more matches, you get prize money, you get um, quote unquote reimbursed for your achievements. But to kind of keep going with the business investing metaphor, as professional tennis players, especially in our ranks and uh, the ranks below us, you're simultaneously the CEO of your own tennis career, you're the CFO of your own tennis career, and you're, you make all of your own decisions. I'm one of the lucky ones that have a, a college education. So I have some understanding of the economy and growing up and still having a dad 
that is has a very entrepreneurial spirit and has always been very good with money has helped me with that but there's a lot of people that now through their tennis has to be their their means of surviving for them but also maybe even being in charge of their family finances and kind of uh, escaping the hole that um, mm. they, they were in before that and I think um, having an understanding of how money works and, and how the world works with money is vital to that for sure. Sam, as a, as a professional tennis player, what can players who are members of this, that are, who are on the challenger tour and then those who are on the ATP tour, what type of like membership benefits exist? Is there a sort of orientation? Is there training? Uh, what does that look like for a player? Yeah, so as you as you get to a certain ranking threshold, you can apply to be an official member of the ATP, and you get a a quick introduction into what the ATP is. And one great thing that the ATP has done is they have partnered with Coursera, um, the online learning platform, mm. um, to give players at least the opportunity to pursue uh, free online classes. Now, do I wish that was utilized more by us players? Absolutely. But I think that's that's one of the great benefits that are there. But I think in in general, you know, especially for for people in my situation, it's become clear that sometimes you have to make decisions purely based on your finances, and those might not always be the most professional decisions, but they're the decisions that are financially available. And especially if you know if you lose first round in in one tournament, and uh, you have to to make sure to get to the next tournament. That can hurt quite a bit, and the the finances of how the ATP tour works below the the main TV level can play a big toll on on people's uh, mental health as well, and it can add a lot of stress to what is also already a uh, a pretty stressful life, just based on how much we go through up and downs. So Sam, tell me a little bit more about um, the offerings. So f- when you mentioned that partnership with Coursera, are those online classes, do they include any courses on financial literacy? And how is that sort of customized in any way? Because I imagine most of the players on the Challenger Tour, as well as the ATP Tour, um, are in very different life circumstances, whether they're supporting hmm. a, a family or whether they're fresh out of college or even high school and making their go at professional tennis. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a, that's a great observation. It is more so a, a blanket for everybody. It's um, what Coursera does really well is they have classes that are associated with different American colleges that you can take online at your own pace. But like you said, a, a career and life has many different stages. One thing that has become clear for me as I've played professional tennis for a few years now is there are expenses that are always going to be there. We're always going to have to travel. We're always going to have to provide our own food. We're always going to have to, um, some well, not always. We're sometimes going to have to pay for our, our hotel. And if we're lucky enough, we can afford a coach. Wow. Especially in the in the earlier stages, you know, as, as the prize money often doesn't catch up with um, the expenses that we have, one thought that I had was how can we make those expenses go the longest way? And again, some people might not know how credit card work or, you know, as we started to get prize money, 
we get it deposited into a bank account, but how do we choose what the right bank is for us? And um, how does the banking system even work? And especially now uh, was this year, which was one of my motivations to reach out to the Motley Fool Foundation, was with this record inflation going on, how do we protect our finances as much as we can? And that's where I think having a, a basic understanding of how can we save something or how do we budget appropriately? And if we get through you know, those stages where we're losing more money than we're making, um, how do you then start thinking, again, going back to the long game, how do you start thinking about investing? How, do we, how does the stock market even work? And right now, those are all questions that apply to me as well. And one thing I think that the full foundation does so well, and uh, I think is a big strength of yours, is trying to make the message stick. And one thing that makes a message stick is making it customized to where people are in their career stages, but also in their life stages. You know, some players might be thinking about buying a house now and starting a family. So how does the mortgage work? And how do you go about maybe getting a loan? Um, those are all questions that I don't have an answer to. Um, but one of the things that uh, felt appropriate to me is to say, hey, look, ATP, you have hundreds, if not thousands of people from all different backgrounds, uh, different cultures and different age groups that are all trying to do their best as they navigate the world of tennis. Um, maybe it's more of your responsibility to tailor some education to the different stages of careers. And, you know, what if you make it into the top where the Nadals are, where the Federers are, how do you make sure that your contracts are, uh, are legit? And what if you get to a point where you're lucky enough to have an agent, you know, how does that work? Um, so there are so many questions that are particular to athletics and also finances that I think the Motley Fool Foundation could help so much with in a partnership with an ATP. Well, that's delightful to hear, Sam, and thank you. You know, I, I'm hearing you. First of all, you are on the Challengers Council. I think I know that about you. And so as an articulate, well-educated person thinking about the benefit of those around him and supporting his peers, you are one of the few people to represent the Challengers to the ATP as the ATP works with you all to improve the lives of, of people on Challenger Tour. Am I right about that? Yeah, you're right that I am on the, uh, the Challenger Council. Um, and that's a group that we started with uh, a few players in combination with the ATP. It's not an official recognized body, okay. but yeah. it's, uh, it's a body of players that are passionate about a couple of things. One, like you said, is improving the life for everybody. And one thing that is so important in having a representative is someone who has gone or is going through the same things that the people they represent are. You bet. Um, and then the second part of that is we're all trying to get higher up, you know, with my ranking is right now, I hope in, in a year, three years, five years, I'm much higher than I am right now, but that doesn't mean I don't want to make the world a better place for people that are coming up to the ranking where I am now. And as we thinking about leaving a legacy, I think the, the challenger council is a, is a great way to do that. Wonderful. Well, thank you. So it's really something that uh, the entrepreneurial you uh, supporting helping start to advocate at that level. I, I'm, I'm asking a leading question here. You don't know where I'm headed, but you'll understand once I do. But my leading question is, do you find that the ATP 
is responsive? Do they feel aligned and supportive of some of your requests and thoughts coming from the council? I think so, yes. And we've especially felt that with um, this new person that's been hired this year as the head of the uh, Challenger Tour. His name is Richard Glover. He's been great in, in collaborating and we've had numerous calls. Okay. And what's also important to, to realize is that the ATP is not only made up of players, but also of the tournament. And obviously the player council is only really representing the players. So there's always a little bit of bias as, <laughs> as we are trying to make the tour better for players. And, you know, some of the ideas or the thoughts that we have might not be the most appropriate just because of the, sure. uh, the tournament side and the corporate side of the ATP as well. But that's all of it is just a great learning tool and a, a very motivational way to do things for me. You're describing um, a, an ecosystem and one that's larger than, of course, just any one of these uh, bubbles in the Venn diagram of tennis. It's not just about the players, not just about the tournaments, not just about the ATP. It needs to be connected. But the reason I'm, I'm asking about this, my leading question, uh, because I, I was having a, a humorous conversation recently with a friend from baseball. So I'm about to hold up Major League Baseball as not as good a player as the ATP. So this is a brief digression, but it's Kind of a funny story. So um, my friend has been involved in minor league baseball for a long time. And in recent years, baseball fans will know that a number of minor league teams have just been cut. Like you're no longer feeding the major leagues. Um, and so I think a lot of people in minor league baseball who feel tied to major league baseball are increasingly feeling alienated and not supported. And that's why I'm delighted to hear of the proactive alignment that I'm hearing in general that the ATP is showing, I think, good leadership. Um, so my friend was just describing negotiations a few weeks ago in New York City where effectively an, a Major League Baseball executive was speaking to all of the minor league teams saying, we want you all to take this new sponsor. We're going to be doing a broader umbrella advertising deal. We need you guys, these are my words, of course, to take this sponsor. And the sponsor is a company that works in male erectile dysfunction. And my friend, who has been working within the family environment of minor league baseball for a few decades, struggling to figure out how to communicate how this really doesn't work very well to the big head honchos with all the power, came up with something like this. He said, so there are not that many kids who go to major league baseball anymore. I still love the game. We do. I love the game. But Admittedly, it's there are a lot of corporate tickets, boxes, and there aren't as many kids. You go to a minor league baseball game in the United States today, and there are families that are going. So he said in so many words to the major league baseball exec, what you're kind of asking us to do is it's we're Disney, it's our parade, and the third float in the parade is going to be a big male erectile dysfunction float <laughs> in the middle of our parade. Anyway, uh, story ended. But it, it's interesting for me to hear at high levels for these sports, they're all businesses, uh, who's actually aligned and working toward a win for everybody and who is holding others over the barrel saying, you're going to take this advertising package, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, um, it comes back to a message that, I think you love to spread about conscious capitalism where you want all stakeholders involved to be winning and not just one part. And I think it's important for us as ATP players to know yep. that we are one part of the puzzle. And it doesn't mean that 
we cannot advocate for what we think are improvements, um, but we also got to realize how the business side of the ATP works and, and also how the tournament side of the ATP works. And having to, the opportunity and the chance to be kind of more connected with people on the inside of the ATP has only made me more motivated to, to advocate even more. So that's been a lot of fun. Great. So Sam, I have a question for you. I mean, it's so clear that you're, you've got so many you know, interests beyond, on and outside the tennis court. You, in fact, didn't think about professional tennis. Um, you didn't think it was a reality till, you know, after, during, like your junior year in college was when you started making that plan. If you weren't a professional tennis player, where do you think you'd be today? That's a fun question. Um, so in, ooh, this is going to date me a little bit <laughs> as a 28-year-old, but there is, uh, in 2011, I had hip surgery as a 17-year-old um, because of uh, my tennis. And um, even funnier than that, I was supposed to go to Boston University. And when the coach uh, heard about my surgery, he decommitted from me, which, which meant that – no hard feelings, coach – but um, which meant that I, I had to, to kind of take a gap year between high school and college and go through the rehabilitation process. And that stuck with me so much that – I knew one of my passions was going to be something related to sports medicine and the human body. And that has never really gone away. That's also the degree that I studied at the Pacific. It was health and exercise science. And um, I think if I weren't playing tennis right now, I would be somewhere either still studying to be a doctor or um, at some point, hopefully working for a professional sports team on the, on the medical side, because I know, um, how big of a, an impact it can have as an athlete to not be able to, to play the sport that you love so much. It, it really takes part of your identity away and to, to be able to guide athletes back to where they were and hopefully better places um, through medicine is definitely one of the, the passions that I have and will still continue to be um, as I close my uh, tennis career, hopefully in a long, long time from now. Sam, knowing what you know now, what advice would you have given yourself when your career first started? Ooh, great question. Um, yeah, so my, my career has kind of spanned uh, four years now. Um, I started at the beginning of 2017, and the pandemic year, especially the first year of 2020, was, uh, was a bit weird. Um, but I think it comes back to a... Uh, a principle that I read in one of Jim Collins's book is figure out first who and then what. Um, I think that was uh, such a big eye opener for me where who you surround yourself with is so important because these are the people that are going to be reiterating your process to you when things might not look uh, the way that you wanted them to. And if you find whether it be that coach or for me, that doubles partner, where you feel good with and you feel like um, you have a click with, you'll figure out what to do together at that point. Um, but figure out the people that are genuinely cheering for you uh, when things go well. And I think one of the things that I would like to tell my younger self is you can be a role model to anybody and you don't have to be on primetime TV um, for people to, to be 
inspired by you. Um, you know, there's always going to be people that want to be in the situation that you are, whether that be if you're ranked a thousand in the world, 500 in the world or number one in the world. Um, so make sure that you know that and um, make sure it doesn't freeze you up, but it more frees you up to know that people are looking up to you and you live a great life, even through the roller coaster up and downs of a professional tennis life. That is wonderfully said. And Sam, you are exemplifying for many hearing us this week um, how to think and how to be. And so thank you for your leadership, which is very evident to me. You know, there is that old, it's, it's often called, I think it's an African proverb, but you know, if you want to go fast, go alone. And if you want to go far, go together. And I think I heard you just say that in so many words is you realize it's, it's about having a, a group and a team around you and thinking uh, broadly about others, not just, not just yourself. It, it, so if you want to go fast, go alone. And I know a lot of tennis players do have to go alone. And I appreciate George describing court 52 and it's raining and windy and you're crying in the second set. You're feeling very alone. Um, but indeed, for those who have the benefit of having a coach, a wonderful family and exemplars in their own lives, I think that's the way to go far. So let's hope, Sam, you continue to go far. And I, I hope we're sending some others farther as a consequence this week. Closing question for you, Sam. Again, this one inspired by our Twitter following. It's a lovely question. Sam Verbeek, how would you say investing has helped you as a tennis player? And how has playing tennis helped you as an investor? Yeah, I love that question. That's a great question. Um, so first and foremost, I think professional tennis has helped me in investing uh, because of the focus on the mindset. Um, there is a lot of things in tennis that I don't have any control over, but the thing that I have the most control over is my process and how I prepare myself for matches and how I go about my training. And I think that has helped me in investing because there is so much going on um, in the financial world with the stock market going up and down every day, um, having all of these TV channels all saying different things, but kind of the same thing <laughs> and not really knowing what to, what to tune out. And, you know, I'm very much right now in the er very early innings of my investing journey. Um, and I think the process has to be good from the start. And what has helped me is mm. if I'm, if I don't have a good process with the very limited amount of um, money that I have in the market right now, I'm not going to be able to have a good process when that hopefully increases in years and decades. So um, that has also kind of linked me back to my tennis is where, you know, just focus on what you can control. And sometimes the outcome is not as you want it. And that kind of ties into the second principle of a mistake versus a failure. Um, right now, as with my learning portfolio, a lot of it is down. And <laughs> yeah, it doesn't... Mine, mine too, by the way. You know, the first 12 to 18 months of your investing journey has been very, very unusual yeah. and surprising. Yeah. Yeah. But my normal is I started with my, um, with my pretend portfolio, my learning portfolio um, in the middle of last year. And it didn't really matter what I did. Everything seemed to go up. So I was like, oh, this is easy. This is great. Um, and, you know, as this last year has proven, it's not that easy and it's sometimes not that great. Um, but anyway, what I, what I realized tying it back into the process is there's a difference to me between a mistake and a failure. 
where a mistake is where the outcome is not as you wanted. And that could be for my tennis, um, losing a match um, where I felt like I had a great process. My preparation was great and I did everything I needed to do, but I lost. And tying that back to investing, that could be I had a great investing thesis. Um, I did everything I wanted to do when um, following that company and um, but I'm I'm down big. You know, that could be a mistake. Whereas a failure would be I'm investing in this business because I feel like I'm missing out on a very easy gains. Mm. I diverted away from how I researched the company or what, the things that I need to read before I decide to invest. And I think knowing that there are so many businesses in my portfolio that are so far down um, reminded me that it might not be a failure because I did what I needed to do. And also my time horizon is not uh, done yet by far. And that kind of reminds me of my tennis is where, you know, we're going to lose many matches in a year. And the thing that we have to focus on is how do you prepare? How do you bounce back? And how do you keep kind of a, a steady mindset throughout the year? You know, borrowing a line from you is don't only learn from your losers or the matches that I lose, but definitely also from your winners mm. and the matches that I win. Um, you know, when I think about the matches that I won or the matches that I played really well, I always want to ask myself the question, what did I do? You know, what was my process? What made me play well? And what can I take from that for my next match? And I think it's a great question to ask for the businesses in your portfolio as well is to say, you know, what happened? What did the business do for the stock to go up? You know, what did I focus on in my research process or what happened in the world for this to be beneficial for this business? And not just looking at the things that are down, but also definitely learning from the things that go well. Sam, thank you so much. I mean, it's, you know, my, my, uh, my wife always jokes with me that, you know, I'm obsessed with tennis and I see tennis and life as one in the same. And, you know, what you learn on the tennis court is just, you know, all of it is life lessons. Um, so, you know, having this conversation with you and hearing you make the connection between what you've learned on the tennis court and how it relates to your investment philosophy and your mental toughness and your health is just music to my ears. Always love talking to you, Sam, and I know we're going to have many more conversations to follow full on. Well, my watchword throughout this very difficult year of 2022 has been, for anyone who's listening, just keep swimming. But I think this week it's particularly appropriate simply to tweak it to just keep swinging. Yeah, and uh, nice. I want to I thank George Koloff, the program director at the Motley Fool Foundation and really a very accomplished tennis player who's just at this age now a weekend warrior. Thanks, David. And of course, George and I most of all want to thank our special guest, Sam Verbeek, for his authenticity, his inspiration, some pretty good tips, not just about tennis, but about life, but most of all, his presence out there on the Challenger Tour, thinking about how to make it better for those around him, not just in the world of tennis, although yes, that, but in the world of financial freedom for all, how can we make it better? And Sam, you are part of our solution as we continue to go forward as fellow fools. So thank you for joining us. Three, two, one, go. So thank you for joining with me for this special Two Fools podcast. Sam, fool on, my friend. Thank you very much. Keep fooling on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. 
So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.